Welcome to Sealy Talks. My name is Frida Greeley and I'm a programme manager at the Sealy Institute based in Prague. In this, our third episode of this series, we continue our focus on the acceleration of digital justice in the courts and the challenges and benefits it presents to the judiciary in Central and Eastern Europe. In this episode, we hear from Jerzy Novak, a lawyer based in Prague. He's a member of the Council of Bars and Law Societies of Europe, otherwise known as the CCBE, where he chairs its IT Law Committee. And he shares his thoughts on the digitalization of justice and the use of remote hearings in the Czech justice system. But first, we are joined by Professor Linda Mulcahy of Oxford University. She tells us about her research with the Justice Project and discusses the role of the judge in remote hearings and what kind of techniques can be used by them to recreate the formality and processes of a physical court hearing. Professor Mulcahy has written extensively on the subject. And recently, when I met with her, we started by talking about her early work in the area. I suppose about 15 years ago, the dynamic of the virtual trial started to be introduced into that and the possibility of doing justice from remote places. And I was particularly interested in how that was panning itself out in Australia where it's often essential for people who live in very remote districts to be able to use video links. In the UK, where Linda's based, the rise of COVID-19 and the ensuing pandemic have accelerated the implementation of digital justice. And in that context, she undertook research last summer to identify what was the perfect setting to run a virtual trial, working closely with technicians to create optimum conditions that could preserve the dignity and decorum of the court process. I learned a tremendous amount during that trial. It was really, it was an action research project. So we were changing the experiment all the time, talking to barristers and judges about how well it was going. So that was a great experience. So I think that's relevant to what I'd like to talk about in terms of how we prepare judges, because I think if all the parties are prepared, it probably makes the judges role much easier. How ordinary and particularly disadvantaged people, people that might be very close to the digitally disadvantaged category, how they're reacting to it. Because again, I think the whole process has to bring people on board. Of particular interest to the research was the impact of virtual trials on judges and how it differs from a physical court environment. It's difficult for judges, I think. There are new challenges for them with video hearings because suddenly they don't have the courthouse and the courtroom to help them. And I think we can all very easily imagine the ways in which the courtroom does work for the judges. You know, you normally have an enormous coat of arms or some sort of state or civic symbol behind you. Uh, You're higher than everybody else. You're wearing robes. You probably have a wood panelled room. And the tradition of having uh, the association of wood and the trial goes back to the medieval era. But it's not only judges that have found difficulty with the virtual trial process. It's really challenging and a lot of criminal barristers in this country have reacted very negatively um, to video hearings and want us to return to physical courtrooms as soon as the pandemic is over. My view is I think there's a danger that we romanticise the courtroom and the dignity that it confers because not every courthouse or courtroom is, is dignified. 
But I think what we need to think about is developing new rituals. The ritual of attending court in person should not be underestimated, according to Professor Mulcahy. And between going through security, passing the grand entrance of the courthouse and entering the waiting area, the process itself is a journey that in turn prepares the litigants for the trial. I think it helps them prepare psychologically for the experience and it, in a way puts them in a different, a very special space. Now, that's valuable for judges because people need to be ready. They need to be prepared um, for justice and they need to be prepared for the sort of gravity of the proceedings. And when people are in their kitchen one minute or their bedroom and then within 30 seconds they're in a courtroom, that whole dynamic changes. Advocating a need for the establishment of new rituals, Professor Mulcahy stresses that time The use of it and the management of it by judges is crucial to the integrity of the trial process. I think timing, thinking intelligently about timing is the most important and actually judges do that already. So there's a very different sort of time in courtrooms when when we meet physically. I think it's heavier. I think it's more ponderous. I don't know what happens with your judges, but in English and Welsh courtrooms, the judge often asks the barristers to pause in their argument, often because they're they're writing handwritten notes or they want to ask a question. And I think a good trial is not rushed. Um, And just because we now have this instantaneous form of connecting with each other, I don't think means that the trial itself has to speed up. And I think it's important to keep that sort of ponderous quality to it. But the personality of the judge also has a significant bearing on the quality of the proceedings. Judges themselves, their personality can confer a gravity and dignitas. And that's one of the things that we learned from the work that we did with justice last summer, was the judge was absolutely critical to the legitimacy of video hearings. Absolutely critical. As well as relying on the judge to confer a sense of gravitas in remote court proceedings, Professor Mulcahy also notes that the attire of the judge, their comportment and even the visual backdrop plays a role in underscoring the importance of the proceedings. These observations were a focus of the recent research she has undertaken. We had a judge in our experimental trials who was basically coming into court from their bedroom So suddenly the bedroom becomes part of the courtroom and that isn't what's intended. So we designed um, a pull-up screen that we sent out to the judge so that they could have a coat of arms behind their head. It took quite a lot of time actually to work out how we could do the coat of arms. It didn't look as if it was coming out of the judge's head, but it still looked uh, dignified. We asked the judge to wear their gown and actually we asked them to wear their wig because immediately that meant that a lay participant could come into the virtual hearing and they knew who the judge was. They they knew who the important person was. Because, of course, when you have a court in a physical place, often the judge arrives after everybody else. That You could do that in a virtual hearing, but it's a little bit clunky, I think, to manage. So normally the judges, certainly in English hearings, are already in the tribunal when the laity come in. And so they had to find other ways, I think, of establishing immediately absolutely immediately that they're the person in charge. But of equal importance for a trial judge may be their ability to put participants of the remote hearing at ease by offering them a sense of reassurance, a facet 
which may be less essential for people attending a court case in person. I've been conducting a lot of online interviews this term and something I always say to the people who I'm connecting with who I've never met before and I pick this up from somebody else was to say, if the internet connection goes wrong, it's not your problem. And if we need to, we'll just reschedule for another time. And there's a calm that you can bring to the proceedings by being somebody in authority. And I think judges are very good at that. They're naturally really good at it. So I think them still thinking that it's got to be ponderous and not to rush people and to ask, I think what's really important in the feedback that we're getting so far is asking people, are you, are you following this? And making sure you introduce them to everybody, which you don't always do in the court, but suddenly they've got nine people perhaps on the screen. So introducing them, making clear to them that if they want to intervene, they just need to raise their hand and just giving them the same sense of process. I mean, a lot of judges that I've been watching uh, just immediately say this is exactly the same as a trial would be conducted in a physical setting. We're just online. So we'll follow the same rules of evidence. I think people need that reassurance. I think that's important. Identifying what separates the physical trial from the virtual one may be important for the judge to announce. Replicating some of the courtroom procedures may also help enhance the experience of participants. So I think use of time, reminding people what might be different about this trial. Still, I think doing affirmations and oaths you know, all those things that you would normally do can still be done. And I think they all give a sort of sense of gravitas. And just as the preamble and the process of a remote hearing differ from a physical courtroom, the conclusion of proceedings tend to be more abrupt, with no space and little time for participants to process the findings and assess the outcome. It may be that you need to say something at the end of the trial, because normally people would leave the court They'd gather with friends or whatever outside. They would slowly move out of the court building. They would have a bit of space between the trial and them leaving the Palais de Justice. So I think we need to manage entrances and exits from the court and perhaps just have some sort of more ritualistic closure at the end of it because the person on the other end is just going to quickly go from the court back to their kitchen. And we want to give them a sense of having been somewhere special and having time to also leave that place. So I think time is the greatest asset, control of time. It's, it's what reflects the judge's sovereign power. They are completely in control of what happens and when. While dress, decorum and etiquette in a virtual setting may be an easy transition for judges, lawyers and officers of the court, this may prove less obvious for lay participants where court clerks are often instrumental in helping to set the tone. Often, I find when I do court observations, it might be the usher or the clerk that help people to understand how they need to behave in the court. So they might say, take your hat off or take the gum out. And they do it very gently often, but that's what they're doing. They're managing the decorum, sort of micro-level management of the decorum. So for me, I think what's important with the project that we're working on at the moment is to prepare people for the trial. We want people to think this is their trial, but, you know, we're advising them very gently, don't interrupt people, because that's one of the problems we have with video link, of course, with people just butting in and you can't hear anything. You know, just raise your hand. The judge will come round to you when they're ready, um, but you will have your chance to speak. And I think the point is to say you can't eat, nobody can eat in the trial. 
because this is the dignity that the trial offers you, that people are completely focused while they're in the trials. So I think there are, in many ways, I think there are things that we can begin to do better through virtual hearings. Because I think now governments across the world are interested in how do we prepare people if we haven't got the courthouse to help us prepare them in their journey to the courtroom? How do we do this in different ways? Professor Mulcahy sees preparation of laypersons as key, not only to improve their experience with remote hearings, but also as an assist for the judge, who will then be presiding over a virtual hearing where participants are familiarised with the proceedings before they have even commenced. I think we can do all sorts of things through audiovisual guides to actually prepare people in different ways and ways that the court courthouse normally would do. I think that will make it easier for judges. Then people won't feel that they're in the trial and they, they don't know what's going to happen next. You know, we, we can tell them these things in advance and, and get them to sort of be prepared. Well, there is no substitute for preparation. And with that, thank you, Professor Mulcahy, for your practical insights and suggestions, which I'm sure will give our listeners and our judicial colleagues food for thought on their role and conduct in the use of remote hearings. Our next guest is Jerzy Novak, a lawyer based in Prague and a member of the Council of Bars and Law Societies of Europe, otherwise known as the CCBE, where Jerzy chairs its IT Law Committee. Recently, we met to get his insights into the digitalization of justice and the use of remote hearings in the Czech justice system, and also to hear his thoughts on the topic of electronic evidence. I started by asking him about the CCBE and his role as chair of the IT Law Committee. CCB members include 45 bars and law societies from the European Union, but also from wider Europe. And uh, through its members, uh, CCB represents over 1 million of European lawyers. Now, the main task of the IT Law Committee is to address issues that are somehow basically connected to the information technology within the core direction of of CCPE. And uh, this way, we deal with electronic evidence initiatives. We deal with uh, the Ecodex project, for example, that we took part of, GDPR, artificial intelligence, and lately with the digitalization of justice as part of the current EU e-justice action plan. As a practicing lawyer, Jerzy Novak is also familiar with the milestones made in the digitalization of justice within the Czech Republic. I think the main milestone that we have experienced was back in 2009 with the so-called data box system, which is basically a system that allows for delivery of messages between the state authorities and the members of public, including lawyers tax advisors, and so on. Basically, it's a, one can see it as a sophisticated email system, but it's more than that nowadays. But the main advantage is that we were able to leave the usual written correspondence behind, unless we want to, because it's for lawyers, it's not mandatory to use the system. This way, we can communicate with the courts and well, other state authorities, uh, basically online. So now, it's a lot faster, it's more interconnectable with the IT systems that we have, and I think that was a big milestone. 
Citing the welcome introduction just last year of video conference abilities between lawyers and their clients held in custody as a significant benefit for lawyer-client relations, Yerji sees the further digitalization of justice as a natural next step. The introduction of the lawyer-prisoner video conferencing system has also been a source of professional satisfaction for this Czech lawyer. I was gladly at the birth of the system as a, I would consider myself as a father of the system. And I think that the main advantage for lawyers is that it really saves time. And at the end of the day, it saves money of the client or of the public budget if the lawyer is paid by the state. What's going to be next? Well, hopefully we'll have a widespread video conference hearings in the near future. I know that the Czech authorities are working on that. And in fact, I think it is more and more common that even courts want to hold video conference hearings by themselves. While welcoming time-saving benefits provided by the digitalization of justice, Foremost among Jerzy Novak's concerns is lawyer-client confidentiality, the sanctity of which he sees as immutable. The lawyer's confidentiality, that's something that we are dealing with a lot at the CCB and at the IT Law Committee. And basically, the reason is that the client communication and the corresponding lawyer's confidentiality is uh, something that is inseparable from the principle of fair trial as one of the fundamental rights, which is enshrined in the Article 6 of the European Convention on Human Rights and Fundamental Freedoms. So without lawyers' confidentiality, there is no fair process. And without the fair process, there is no rule of law, basically. But Article 6 is not the only article of the European Convention that provides the protection of lawyer-client communication. It's also the Article 8. Maybe it's not clear from the wording itself, but the European Court of Human Rights, by its uh, case law, came to the conclusion that even this right to privacy covers and protects communication between lawyer and the client. Now, the difference between Article 6 is that it applies wherever a proceeding is taking place. It covers the communication between lawyer and client from the first consultation that they have, even though there's no formal proceedings yet. Another challenge for Yerji in his role as chair of the CCBE's IT committee is electronic evidence. What exactly is it and how can it be defined? One of the projects that uh, CCB was part of, and that was the European e-evidence project, or its full name, the European Informatics Data Exchange Framework for Courts and Evidence Project. And uh, one of the deliverables was to adapt a definition of uh, electronic evidence. And the definition that this project came to, the electronic evidence is any information of potential or tangible probative value that is generated through, stored on, or transmitted by any electronic device. But Jerzy Novak also differentiates between different types of electronic evidence, each of which may require a different level of investigation by the court. What I think is important to realize is that for the daily life in a courtroom, uh, there is a difference between a electronic-born evidence that I would call the e-evidence per se, and the evidence that has become electronic throughout its uh, life course. It has been digitized. 
And with the latter one, with the digitized evidence, that just for as, as an example, it, it can be just any uh, a written contract that has been scanned and provided to the court in its electronic form, then it's usually quite easy to work with. And on the other hand, with electronic evidence, which is nature-born electronic evidence, that may be different because usually there are some metadata connected to it. Usually it's not just available in the human readable form. And sometimes we have to go to the source code of this uh, evidence to really understand what's behind it, what's the value for the proceeding. And as with physical evidence, the integrity of electronic evidence is a crucial factor in its adjudication by the court. Every piece of uh, e-evidence is different as well as any other piece of real-world evidence. But um, I think what matters perhaps uh, the most uh, in connection with the e-evidence is the chain of uh, custody. And that basically covers all the questions that we may have typically. How was the data collected? How was the data stored in the meantime before it got to the courtroom? How was it transferred? How was it analyzed? Was it accessible to someone? And the approach will be different with the electronic born evidence and the digitalized evidence. Since preparation of evidence is a predeterminant to its proper presentation, electronic evidence may require additional time and resources, presenting an untimely challenge for the defense team. Last thing I would like to mention in this regard is perhaps an urge, especially in the criminal cases, where it may happen that a large amount of data, let's say gigabytes of, of data stored somewhere on a hard drive, will be provided to the defendant, but will be provided just a few days before the trial. And then, of course, it will be very complicated for defense to analyze such data because, of course, of the lack of time available, but also because of the usual lack of technical possibilities that the defense has in comparison to the prosecution service. So let's not forget about that because such situations then lead to issues that relate to fair trial and can temper with the fair trial of the whole proceedings. Of course, the presentation of electronic evidence in a remote hearing will also differ from a physical court. But here, the electronic evidence may more easily sit within a remote hearing environment. With the digital evidence or e-evidence, it seems that presenting of e-evidence is perhaps more natural in the remote hearing environment. It can uh, truly be so, but also on the other hand, the remote hearing has to use technologies that allow for a well-accessible presentation or even of the e-evidence. Sometimes court can share its uh, computer screen on the screen for the parties, which is maybe the most convenient way because then everybody sees the, the same piece of evidence and comment on it. But uh, sometimes if such technology is not available, well, then it's perhaps uh, more complicated to be on the same page for all the parties. But maintaining the integrity of electronic evidence and the security of services used by lawyers is also a great concern that may demand a more cautious approach by lawyers. Lawyers, as basically any other profession, need to work in an IT environment. Our clients work in an IT environment. The courts work in an IT environment. 
and more often than, than not, we have to use uh, cloud services. But for the cloud services to be uh, open for our use, we also have to think about the ontological rules, our code of conduct, and we have to think what will happen with the data if we put them into a cloud. Will it be safe from hackers? Will it be safe from government authorities? And we found out that with the data stored in a cloud, the cloud service providers can often not guarantee protection of lawyers' confidentiality of the data that is stored in the cloud until the cloud service providers will have sufficient procedural protection to protect lawyers' data stored in their clouds. Then lawyers will have to be very careful about storing their clients' data into clouds. Well, on that cautionary note, thank you, Jerzy Novak, for your analysis and insights. And no doubt, as many jurisdictions continue to grapple with digitalization, safeguarding the integrity of electronic evidence and data will be a constant theme, not only for lawyers, but for the entire justice system. Also, a big thanks to our earlier contributor, Professor Linda Mulcahy, for her expert insights on recreating the formalities of a physical court in remote settings. Well, that's it for this episode. Coming up in our next and final podcast of this series, we will be joined from Kosovo by Fatmir Recepi, Head of the Information and Technology Department at the Kosovo Judicial Council, and from Bulgaria by Judge Emil Deshev of the Sofia City Court and Biliana Girova-Vagertseder from the Bulgarian Institute for Legal Initiatives. Two stories about digital justice with two very different outcomes, yet one very similar lesson. For Sealy Talks, I'm Frida Greeley. Till next time, thank you for listening. Thank you.